Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Where we've been previously in uh, 1 Corinthians is, uh, is through a series titled Saints in Society. Today we're taking a pause from that. We, and once a month we take this pause because we've been working through a series for the past couple months titled Race, Culture, and Reconciliation. So 1 Corinthians, Saints and Society is what we've been going through in three out of the four Sundays. That's what we teach through. That's what we'll be back in next month. But one out of the four we do this uh, series that we're doing over the course of four months titled Race, Culture, uh, Race, Culture and Reconciliation. So that's where we're going to be at today in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 2. A few things before we dive in is, is, is this, is that if you're new with us today, um, as, as, as Dana said, if you're visiting today, if you are investigating Christianity, we are honored to have you here as our guest. No matter what subject we are on, no, no matter what we do, our aim and goal is to make Jesus the hero through whatever text we find ourselves in of the Bible. No matter what the subject is, our aim and our goal is to preach God's word. It's not for a man to give up in front and give his opinion on every um, cultural thing going on in society. So what we will do week after week here is we will preach God's word, and through each sermon, the aim and the goal is to highlight the gospel and to highlight Jesus and show how everything in the word finds its uh, pinnacle and its culmination in Christ and in the work that he's done and that he's finished and that he's accomplished. So that's what we're going to do today. Um, if you're with us, that's what we aim to do each week. And so um, I'm going to read the passage and just say this. We're going to be in this same passage, though I'm going to read all of it today. Then uh, next month in October, we're going to be preaching from this same passage, just the rest of the verses. So today we're going to only cover verses 11 through 13 and next time we're going to cover 14 through 22. But I'm going to read it all today so we can see what's going on here and what Paul is communicating to the church in Ephesus. I'm also going to say this. When I first started doing this series, Caleb, who was just leading worship, said, um, there's landmines everywhere when you're going to teach and talk on this subject. And I would absolutely agree with that. Uh, thank you for the encouragement right before I preach, Caleb, <laughs> to say something like that. But, but it's a reality. And so here's what I will say is that uh, I'm going to quote Rebecca uh, McLaughlin from Confronting, Confronting Christianity. She says this, We don't have to respect people's opinions. She actually says that's ridiculous. That's what she, she, she goes on to say at that blunt. She says we need to respect other people. And so here's what I'll say. You might disagree with me today, and you might disagree with what I say. My hope is this. In the midst of community, we can have healthy disagreement. We can disagree with one another. We don't have to respect everyone's opinions. We don't have to agree with everyone's opinions, but we can have healthy disagreement um, in, in, in light of being centered around and gathered around a, gator, a greater common goal and a greater common end, which is Christ, Christ's mission, and ultimately our identity in Christ. And so with that, I'll read Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, and we'll dive in. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, 
and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he, beca- uh, and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundations of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, the time and the season that we find ourselves in. And we thank you that your word is timely, always. That the gospel speaks to everything in life. That our one assurance, hope, and peace, and comfort is who you are and what you've done in and through the finished work of your son, what you've supplied, what you've given, and it's through that, through your work, Jesus, that you call all people to yourself. Let us walk out this day remembering who you are and what you've done, what you've accomplished and what you've, fin- uh, what you've finished and who that makes us and how then we respond and live from that. Stir in us this morning through your spirit. Speak to us this morning through your spirit. Thank you for your word, Father, that you have spoken. We are not left questioning. We, we, we are not left to the um, hundreds of authors out there to give us opinions on everything. We have your word. Your word is truth. And through your word, we are sanctified and cleansed through your word. Thank you for the gift of your word. Thank you for the gift that you've spoken to us and have given us the gift of your word. Remind us this morning of all that you've done and all that you've accomplished through and in Jesus. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to dive right in. Can you guys hear me okay in the back? All right. As Ronnie mentioned last week, anytime you see a therefore, this conjunction, we, rec- we, we, we recognize. This is just a good study habit, whether you've been a Christian for a while or are new to studying your Bible. Therefore is there for a reason. And so Paul is building off of what he just said previously. And what we have previously in this passage is Paul explaining something. And I think it's one of just the most incredible passages in our Bible. But what Paul is saying before this at the beginning of chapter 2 is you're completely dead in your sins and in your trespasses, but the grace of God has saved you. And, and, And it's not of your own doing. It's not any works of man so that anyone can boast. It is only and strictly the work of God that you have been saved. You can be called a child of God only because of God's grace. That's it. So that's, that's how the previous, uh, um, uh, section that's, uh, uh, that's prior to this ends and wraps up in verse 10. And then when we jump here, Paul says, therefore, therefore, in light of these things, remember. So what Paul is doing now is, is he's just given this uh, just beautiful statement of how we are saved, just these incredible truths. But now what Paul is doing is he's saying, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh call the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. What is he doing? Paul is saying, this is this beautiful truth, saved by grace alone, but also let's not forget. Let's not forget who you once were. Let's not forget um, who you were once called. Let's not forget what is also true. Why would Paul do something like this? Is Paul wanting them to wallow in their past? What Paul is wanting to do is hold a tension and a balance in this. Paul is wanting uh, to show them you are saved by grace apart from anything that you have done, not by your hands, not by your works, but let's not forget who you once were. What does this do? It sobers 
them. And it sobers us. It causes us to remember. It causes us to reflect that we all shared something in common. The main point this morning that I want you to walk away remembering is we share the worst and the best thing about us in common. We share the best and worst thing about us in common. So what Paul is saying to the Ephesians, to the church in Ephesus, he's like, hey, remember, saved by grace, but let's not forget who you once were. You were once Gentiles in the flesh. What does that mean? It means that you were separated from the covenant people of God, which is the nation of Israel. This is who you once were. You were born like this. This was something that was out of your control. That's what he's saying. You had no control in this matter. You were at one time Gentiles in the flesh. You were called derogatory terms. Paul knows that this is a derogatory term because he's a Jewish man. So what the Jews did is they started to call the Gentiles who were uncircumcised, which was the sign of covenant, they started calling them the uncircumcised. They even had parties that were called the circumcision party. And they took, those two words should never go together, but they took pride in that. And, and, and what is going on here is the same thing happens to the Gentiles, the same thing happens to us, is all of a sudden we should be the most humble people in the world, but as soon as we forget our starting point, and as soon as we forget what we are saved from, as soon as we forget all these things, then what can happen is arrogance and pride can, can, can dwell up inside of us. And so Paul is holding this balance and this tension. But he's reminding them that you were not a part of Israel's covenant promise. Now, let's get this super clear. What did Israel do to become a covenant people before God? Nothing. Deuteronomy 7, 7, you can read it for yourself. It's very clear. God did not choose them because they were strong. God did not choose them because they were pure or holy or more righteous. In fact, they were the smallest. In fact, they were none of that. There was nothing that flowed from the nation of Israel that stirred up God's emotion toward love. The reason why they were loved by God is because it was everything inside of God flowing toward them. So it it wasn't their holiness. It was God's love and God's holiness flowing toward them. It was one-way love. That's what we can define grace as, as a one-way love flowing toward them, not because of something that they're doing to initiate that. It was everything from God's goodness and his love flowing toward them that he chose them to be his covenant people. That is a covenant of grace. And so that's how they became this. Is there any ground in that for the nation of Israel to boast? No, but what happened is they became prideful and they started to call the Gentiles uncircumcised. They started to call them derogatory names in light of race, culture, and reconciliation. One of the ways that we become prideful or feel superior is when we forget that everything that we have and that's been given to us has been given to us by grace and not by our own doing. And so that's how this starts off. And, and here's the reality is, is Gentiles can't control that they are born Gentiles, nor can the Jews control that they became the covenant of God. They were born as Gentiles, and they became the covenant of God. These are two things they were completely out of of control in. Yet, there was great division that came out of this. Great animosity, great hatred, great prejudice, great racism. As we defined earlier, biblically, racism is hate toward someone else. Let me share this story. Stephen... Clarence's older brother remembers the day all too well when Clarence came home from school crying. The two rode separate buses, but Clarence never thought anything of it until one day at school other kids started to call him derogatory names like retard and made fun of him for riding a different bus. They started throwing rocks at him until he was forced to run away. Stephen, his older brother, would always wait for him at the bus stop and Clarence would always give him a big hug. Nothing changed. He gave him a big hug, but started to weep. And to the best of his ability, 
Clarence tried to tell his older brother what happened and that he never wanted to go to school again. Stephen held his little brother, who he loved so much, and in that moment wept with him. This story already stirs up a lot of different emotions in us. But here's the reality. Stephen couldn't control the way that he was born, nor could Clarence. In many ways, we can't control things about us. We can't control our race, our ethnicity. We can't control who our parents are, our DNA. There are a lot of things that we are out of control in. And here's the reality. What Paul is telling the Ephesians is this, is that you have to remember and you can't forget that at one time you had no control over this, but you were outside of the covenant of God. You were called the uncircumcision by the circumcision. These are names that were given to you. You had no control over this. Be sober in this. Remember this. Reflect on this. That's what Paul is calling them to do. But he's also given a warning here. Look with me to the Jewish people. Look what he says. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Look at this right here, which is made in the flesh by hands. This is, this is Paul's knock against Jewish people calling derogatory names to Gentiles. He's saying, look, Jewish people as well in this, remember that what you have has only been given to you by grace. And the sign of that covenant was the sign of circumcision. So what, what you didn't do is earn anything. And then what you have in circumcision is something that's done in the flesh by human hands. And so here's the reality. We can never place any confidence in anything that we do with our human hands to have a right standing before God. And that's what he's calling them out on. This thing that you're taking so much pride in, this circumcision, the thing that you're boasting in and, call, uh, and, and calling derogatory names for, what you are doing is being prideful and self-righteous. That is something done simply by human hands. And here's the reality. A small sliver and a small thorn in our bodies not dealt with can actually cause a major infection. It can get into our bloodstream, and it's something that can eventually, if not dealt with, can kill us. And here's the reality. A small sliver, a small thorn of you thinking that anything that your hands can do to make you right with God or keep you in a right standing with God is a poison or an infection that can spread through your body that will dwell up in pride that will eventually kill you from pride. There is nothing that your hands can do, no sliver, no tiny thorn that you can do to make yourself in right standing with God, to, to, to make God love you or make God continue loving you. And, and if you believe that, if you believe even sitting here now that there's an ounce or a sliver, even a little thorn of something that you're doing by sitting here, anything at all that is making you right with God, then that sort of sliver is the thing that can grow into an infection because it's a pride of thinking that there's something in your hands that you have done to make you right with God. And that's not the reality of what the Bible teaches through and through. And so he's, he, he's telling this to the Jewish people as well. Hang in there with me so we can see how all this comes around to grace. Verse 12 to race and culture and reconciliation is what I mean. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, okay? Uh, again, this is not good. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. So the biggest thing he says to the Ephesians, and this is true of us, we share the worst thing in common, is that when we are born, we are separated from Christ. Listen, we might not like this, but here's the reality. We are born separated from Christ. Paul teaches this in Ephesians, or, uh, uh, in, in Romans 5. 
Uh, we see that we are hostile in our minds. We see that we are enemies of God. And before this, we see in Ephesians 2 that we are dead in our trespasses. We are born in that state. We are born with this sin nature. We are born separated from Christ. We all share the worst thing about us in common, that we are all born in the same sinful state, separated from Christ. But what he also says is you are also separated from the commonwealth. What is that? It was God's theocratic state instructions for the nation of Israel. In other words, God gave a law, a beautiful law, a good, go, uh, a good law. He gave a ceremonial law. He gave a civil law. He gave a moral law. Those were good. They taught them how to live, how to have worship. But God gave them his blessing and his providence. God also gave his covenants, as, as we see here. The covenants of, of, of the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, and the Davidic covenant. We see that God gives these covenants. We were separated from those from birth. So were the Ephesians. That's what he is saying, that we were all united in this, all separated from these blessings that, that the nation of Israel had through God's covenant. But what we were also separated from was the commonwealth of community. And here's, here, here's the reality. Community is the place that we grow. Community is the place that our, our, our faith is fostered. Tim Keller doesn't make a ton of dogmatic stances, but he does say that he thinks it is impossible for our faith to grow outside of community. Community is where we grow. The number one thing the enemy wants to do is to separate us from community and from relationships. Why? Because he knows that ultimately will separate us from our relationship with Christ. One of the greatest blessings about church membership is church discipline. I think people go, whoa, church discipline. Yes, because what church discipline is all about in its essence is restoring people back into the community of faith. You turn people over to their sin, let them chase and run after that simply to see that what they had in Christ and in the community of family of God is far better than the sin that they're turning their lives over to. And so community at large is such a blessing. I want my kids to grow up in a covenant community. I want my kids to grow up in, in a church family. I want my kids under the discipline of the church family. I want that for my children. I want that for me. I want that for our family. That is a blessing. None of us have earned the right to be a part of uh, God's family. None of us ha uh, have earned the right to be called sons and daughters of the living God. That is all a gift. And so Paul is trying to remind them of this. And now what he's doing, we can see this. He's softening them up. He's hit them with a couple jabs, a couple straight shots, and now he's going to land the big fatal blow that we are without hope and without God in the world. No one likes to hear that because we go, well, I got a great family. I got a good job. I got a good career. And then Paul comes in and says something like this, that you're without hope and without God in the world. What does he mean by without hope? That's the reality of the greatest thing that we share in common is that we're born without hope. It doesn't matter how good you were from the earliest age that you can remember, you're born without hope. It doesn't matter how good your parents were, your grandparents were, you're born dead. You're born without hope. And, 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 and here's the reality, is this is called the doctrine of original sin. You can read about this in Romans 5. But there was a guy who combated this theology and this teaching. He was a 5th century guy from Ireland who was a monk, and his name was Pelagius. This is a... This, this will get nerdy for a second, but hang in there with me because it's important. This guy taught that you are born morally neutral, okay, and that you are born morally neutral, and then through following the examples of Jesus' life and his teaching, you can become a holy person. And so all of us born morally neutral, as long as we kind of follow what Jesus did, that we can become morally neutral. Here's the problem with that. Everything the Bible says. We are born 
into a state of sin, uncontrollably tainted by it, bent toward it. I think the only people that argue for this are people that don't have kids yet. Because as soon as you have kids, you see from the youngest of age, I don't know how to say this, but they're nasty little boogers. And like, they don't learn all that stuff from you modeling it for them. They're born with this bent nature. And here's the other reality. When Paul says prior to this in Ephesians 2 that you were dead, what do dead people do? Nothing. We, we once at a youth camp brought a guy up, laid him down, and, and told him, because we were trying to explain this passage, we want you to be dead. And we said, reach up and grab my hand. And he reached up to grab his hand, and we said, you can't do that because you're dead. Dead people don't do anything. Sometimes people throw this analogy out of like, what we were is just kind of drowning in the sea, and God threw out a life preserver, and we grabbed it. That's not what the Bible teaches. The, the, the Bible actually teaches you were dead on the bottom of the ocean without any sort of life breath inside of you, completely dead, unable to save yourself, and that's how you were born. And we don't like that because why? That makes us completely hopeless. We like a Pelagius theology that, that, that makes us more like God. We just make a few small tweaks in our lives and we can do it. We can become the hero of the story. That produces a ton of pride in us. And in the topic of race, culture, and reconciliation, things like this will produce pride because we attach ourselves to strategies, we attach ourselves to methods, and we can solve things. We can solve problems in the world by making these small tweaks. What it also does is it denies Jesus' work. We don't need the cross. We don't need a, a, a substitute for us. We don't need him bearing the, right, uh, the righteous wrath of God. Instead, we can just make a few small tweaks and we can become perfectly holy in and of ourselves. So the reality is what, what this teaching does is it suppresses our need for grace, which we like to do, and it separates us from our need for Jesus. The reason we talk bad about people, the, re the reason why we judge people, the reason why we constantly critique and make uh, small statements about people, the reason why we do this is because it's a Pelagian theology that's developed in us that says, as long as I can put down someone else, I don't have to see my own need for grace. What I can do is critique them, point at them, say stuff about them, and then what I can do is deny my own need for the cross and, and deny my own need for grace. And so it's a way that we can suppress our own need for grace. But here's the reality is Paul says that you're without hope. And again, we don't like being told that we are without hope and having stuff we can't control. But here's the other reality. I'm someone who struggles with anxiety and depression. I don't feel like I can just muster up strength and control that. We have lots of things that we're born with that we can't control. Again, I said race, DNA, our parents, these are things we can't control. And they're hard for us to accept. And it's very hard for us to accept that the Bible teaches this teaching through and through, that we are born without hope, separated from God, and there's nothing that we can do of it. But here's what happens, and here's where it can kind of come full circle for race, culture, and reconciliation, is right now the big things that I hear is this is that we need to rid the world of all evil things. We need to rid the world of racism. Couldn't agree more. That we need to rid the world of, of, of abortion, uh, abortion. We need to rid the world of homelessness. We need to rid the world of, of, of uh, orphans by taking care of them and widows as well. And so everyone has these things that they are passionate about doing. But here's the reality. The reason why we have orphans in the world and the reason why widows aren't taken care of is because an underlining problem that is inside of us called sin. We can fix, we can attempt to fix everything else in the world, but the reason why the, the orphans and the widows aren't taken care of is because we're greedy. It's not that there's not enough money in the world. Think about that. There's plenty of money in the world to take care of people and to take care of needs. The problem is that there's a greater problem inside of us. It's called sin. And so we can deconstruct every system out there and we can reconstruct it. We can 
we can uh, tear stuff down, and we can build new stuff up. But here's the problem. You can do all that, but if you never deal with what's going on inside of us, our sin problem, you're never dealing with the greatest problem. And so what we can do is we can take racism and get rid of it, but we're still not giving people a new heart. We're still not giving people a greater hope. We can take st uh, starvation and homelessness and we can get rid of it. But in a sense, what we're doing is taking people from one prison where there's no food and putting them into another prison now where there's just food, but they're still inside of a prison. But also what you can't do is you can't make a heart stop hating people by telling them strategies and methods and things to do. I know this. I've said this explicitly that I grew up in a racist home. Not implicitly, explicitly, I grew up in that. And, and I know that there's kids among us, so I'm, I'm going to be cautious in, in how I talk through some of this. But let me share this with you. The reason why I don't like just jumping to do's, because that's not the essence of Christianity, or here's what we need to do, we have to focus on what's been done, is because if someone would have came to me, I was an angry little booger filled with hate, and told me, Rick, you need to read this book. Rick, you need to do this. Rick, you need to adopt this. Rick, these are things you need to do. I would have been so angry and so mad at you because you're like, you're just telling me something to do, but my heart has so much hatred in it. This is a true story. I don't take any delight in sharing this, but this is a true story that I had such a hatred uh, for minorities. Um, I think just people all around. I just had so much hatred in my heart that one night I was up in Eugene. Um, I was about 21, 22 years old. I became a Christian at 23. And, and I got into it with a guy. He ended up bringing, um, he was a black man, he ended up bringing a bunch of friends around and, uh, and we got beat up. I, 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 I don't know how else to say this. Um, I remember in, in the backseat of the car, I told my best friend, I said, I want you to turn the car around, I want you to run them all over. And, and I meant that from the deepest part of my heart. I was like, I want you to run them all over. Obviously he didn't do that because he's more sober-minded than me. So what I did is I said, I'm going up there the next week. And I went up. It was actually in Eugene. I was living in Roseburg. I drove, uh, drove up, and I waited in the bar all night until that gentleman left. When he left the bar, this was over by Austin Stadium. There was a place called Tsunamis or something like that. I don't remember the name of it. I should remember the location. Is when the guy walked out of the bar, I, I, I pummeled him to where there was, like, nothing left of him. And here's the reality. Walked away feeling good about what I just did. I went to like a Denny's to get breakfast and felt satisfied. That story now disgusts me. But here's the reality. If someone would have told me, this is what you need to do, Rick. These are the things you need to see. I, I, I wouldn't have known what to do with that. I had a heart made of stone. What I needed is my sin and my, the cancer of sin that had permeated all of my life. I needed a, a, I needed a heart replaced of stone and, and I needed a heart of clay a heart that could be molded, a, a, a heart that could move with love toward people. I was incapable of doing that because of what Paul is saying about the Ephesians was true of me, is that I was born with no hope. I was born in this, and I continue to wallow and live in it. I need us to see, and I need us to understand, too, that if we jump to just saying these are all the things we need to do without recognizing there's a deeper issue going on, that's a Pelagian style of theology to where we can fix and deal with everything else in the world without having to recognize that we are without hope from deep inside here and need the rescuing of Jesus Christ and the grace and the mercy of God to save us. This is a, uh, this is a Presbyterian pastor, Donald Barnhouse. He said that this is what he speculated it would look like. He was a pastor in Philadelphia if Satan took over his city. He said this, 
He speculated that if Satan took over Philadelphia, the city where Barnhouse pastored, all of the bars would be closed, pornography banished, and pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be filled every Sunday where Christ was never preached. So in other words, if our way of fixing, curing, healing anything in society at all is without Jesus, that's not going to work. Because people need a greater hope. They need to be reconciled to God. They need a new heart. And here's the honest thing that I've heard multiple times from people. And it just bothers me to the core. It's absurd to me. As they've said, we need to set the gospel aside and deal with what's going on. And I'm like, my goodness, we cannot put the gospel aside. The gospel is the only cure to heal and fix and resolve and reconcile what is going on inside of our culture with unity to one another and and ultimately with unity to God and then with one another. And then some people might say, well, maybe it's just a societal thing. Maybe not everyone is born with this level of brokenness. No, it is, it is a universal thing, even when people aren't tainted by American society. Watch the movie The End of the Spear, an Ecuadorian jungle where, where people have not visited. They went to what happened. The men were murdered. This is because there's this pervasive sin that runs in us from the time we are born. We need that dealt with. And yes, we should battle racism. Yes, we should battle microaggressions. I'm going to get to that in a minute. Yes, we should battle against all these things. But if the way that we're doing it is not getting people to Christ and is not getting people to the gospel, then we're spending a lot of time focusing on a lot of external stuff when there is a heart issue that has to be dealt with. We are united in this, that we share the worst thing about us. That's where we're at so far in this. But we love Paul because... Paul loves these big conjunctions right here. Look at verse 13. But, this is big, this is huge. (laughs) But, now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Okay, so Paul sobers them up and he gives this thing. You guys all shared this in common. Saved by grace, now he takes them to who they once were, and then he takes them again. This is kind of like God, uh, Paul's gospel sandwich, okay? Gospel and grace on both sides sobers him up, but he's coming back to it. He's, he says here, he says, but you who are in Christ Jesus. So where Paul has them now is he has the waves crashing them, uh, crashing over their heads. He, he softened them up. It's, it's, it's this hopeless thing. Uh, uh, verse 11 and verse 12. This is the scene in the Matrix, if you've ever seen it, where Neo's shot and he's lying dead on the floor. It seems like there's no hope, right? If you like Disney, this is Beauty and the Beast, where the beast dies and it seems like all hope is lost or tangled. When Flynn Rider, you can tell I have girls and, and uh, young girls, when, when, when Flynn Rider's laying there on the floor and all seems lost, okay? That's where Paul's at, but he says this but. But you are in Christ Jesus. So in other words, there is something that is greater. There is something that, that we need to remember. This, this, this in Christ Jesus is something that transcends all other identities. This transcends whatever you have going on in life. This transcends ethnicity. We see this in Galatians 3, 28 and 29. This, this transcends uh, what our culture likes to find uh, their identity in with sexuality. This transcends DNA. You are in Christ Jesus. This transcends mental illnesses. If you're someone that struggles with that, your ultimate idea, uh, identity is not that you have this. Your ultimate identity is that you are in Christ and you struggle with something. 
This is, the, this is what Paul's saying is you have an identity that transcends all other identities in the world, and it is secure. It is the most secure identity. Parked under the bridge the other day, there were cars traveling over me, and I looked over at the pillars, and I was like, I place such confidence in these pillars that I never think about with all these cars traveling over on the interpass. We can place the full assurance and weight of our identity that we are in Christ because of God's covenant to us. We know this. Look at what God says to David in Psalm 89. He says, but I will not remove him from my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. God is, God is appealing to his faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant to David or alter the word that went from my lips. Once and for all, I have sworn by my holiness, not David's holiness, God's holiness. I will not lie to David. Paul is saying we can be just as assurative as God's promises to David with his covenant with him as his covenant to us that we are in Christ. That is the truest, purest, best thing about us from now into all eternity, that that is our identity. We will always and forever be people in Christ. People's response is, well, what if Jesus knew all that I did? What if Jesus knew all that was in my heart? What if Jesus knew of all of my hatred? Let, let me say this graciously, but also seriously, is that's a joke. Because Jesus knew all that you were and all that you were ever going to be before he signed up to save and rescue you. And what you're forgetting is this. This is marriage language. This is covenant language. Is Jesus didn't sign up to you because of what you've done. Jesus' commitment is to you is because of what he's done to you and what he's done for you. Jesus' commitment, again, I'll say that, is, is because of what he's done for you and to you, not because of what you've done. He's made you pure. He's made you righteous. But he's hidden your life in his. How do we get this? Well, thankfully, Paul says it explicitly if we read on. He says, but now, in Christ Jesus, that's the identity. How, how do we arrive at this? You who once were far off, again, reminding them of that, have been brought near. How? It's simple. By the blood of Jesus, by the blood of Christ. I rarely ever ask our church to do this, but I would like you guys that, 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 that proclaim the faith, call yourselves Christians, you, you know how the hymn goes. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus, right? I want us to walk through the lyrics of that song. And your response will be nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is what Paul says, but this is what's important for us to declare and recognize this is how we get this identity in Christ. Ready? What can wash away my sin? Okay, this is weak, but we'll keep working with it. What can make us pure as snow? Okay, listen. What can for sin atone? What can make me whole again? Here it is right here. What is all my hope and peace? what Paul says. We go from no hope at the beginning of this. You're without hope and without God in the world. What is all of your hope? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So when people say there is something else that we need or we need to set the gospel aside, Paul says this internal problem that we have, we have no hope without the blood of Jesus. It's dual purposed. Jesus's blood doesn't just remove sin. It doesn't just wash something away. It actually adds something. It makes us pure. It makes us whole. It makes us clean and it makes us new. It doesn't leave us morally neutral. It makes us positively righteous and holy and perfect before God. And so this is it. How do we become one in Christ? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Where do we get hope and peace from? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The worst and the best thing about us, listen, Christians, the worst thing about us, we had no control in. The best thing about us, we have no control in. What is all of it? 
nothing but the blood of Jesus. The worst thing about us we share in common, born hopeless. The best thing about us, we are in Christ by the blood of Jesus. Let me finish the story with Stephen and, and uh, Clarence. Stephen, Clarence's brother, was way bigger, stronger, and faster than all the bullies. He was a black belt and much older, so he went to school with Clarence the next day, and guess what he did? He took care of things once and for all. When the bullies picked up rocks to throw at his little brother, he jumped in front of him and absorbed all the punishment. This is an odd way to fight a fight. By no means do I mean this to be a comparison of God being a bully and throwing rocks at us and absorbing wrath. What, what this is, and the reason I share this story, it's an odd way to win a fight, right? Because here's the reality. He could have beat him up, but then here's the problem with that. The bullies would have come back to school, and he still would have had to deal with the bullies. What he did is dealt with the bullies to where they were expelled from school, taken away, and so the bullies could no longer mess with them. Christ fought a battle in a really weird way on the cross. What did he disu- uh, do? He disarmed the greatest bully- bullies we have, Sit- saying... Satan, sin, and death. Dealing with them once and for all, what did he do? He started to break down the walls of hostility that divide us. It was an odd way to fight. That's how he won the fight. Each night, this is, this is a true story. It's starting to wrap up here. We, we have a foster son, and I lay with him in bed. And uh, I'll normally tickle his back. This is our routine. We sing Jesus loves me. And then I will lay behind him. Uh, he, he will look over his shoulder like every 30 seconds, keep, and he'll keep looking back at me to make sure that I'm in the bed with him. He just keeps looking. Until I do one thing, I put my arm around him. As soon as I put my arm around him and I just place it there, he never looks over his shoulder a single time again. He falls asleep. He does this almost every night. It's like, it's like clockwork. He'll look, he'll look, and, and he'll do this. What does that mean for us? This, this arm around us is what the blood of Jesus has purchased. It's what he's done. It's what he's accomplished. It's what he's finished. We never have to look over our shoulder and wonder if God will ever abandon us, if God will ever forsake us, if God will ever leave us. The, the, the blood and the cross is a constant reminder that we are assured in Christ. And this is how, and this is why this is important. This is the greatest thing about us that we share in common. And this is why it diffuses race, racism, pride, prejudice, and hatred inside of our culture is that if the worst thing about us we couldn't fix, we share that in common, the greatest thing about us we didn't earn and we didn't achieve and we didn't work for. So there is no grounds for us to boast or take pride in anything that we have that's been given to us by Christ. And if that's the number one thing that unites us as a family, then we have a greater cause and a greater purpose to go out and fight against any sort of injustice inside of the world because we have a greater common good we have a greater identity the gospel actually produces an insane amount of confidence in us through being saved completely by grace but also a great amount of humility in us in that we have not done anything to earn it it starts to break down to to say that we need something other than the gospel you would have to read the rest of this passage which we will next time and see that the only thing that tears down the dividing walls of hostility, the only thing that brings races together, the only thing that ends racism, the only thing that brings unity is the blood of Jesus, is the gospel itself. It is the only thing that has the power to do that. Paul is showing that here. Paul is showing that throughout all of Scripture. That's what it does. So where do we go from here? We fight from these realities of a gospel identity to get people to the truths 
of these identities. And, and, and here's what I mean. I see a lot of gospel abuse on the right and the left, okay? And what I mean by that is people that, that are actually more passionate about other things than the gospel, that use the gospel to try to support what they're passionate about. What we need to do is fight from our gospel identities. And then what we need to do is whatever we're fighting for is we need to be fighting to move people toward the gospel, to win people for Jesus Christ so that the greatest problem is dealt with. And then what we need to do with that is that we need to fight passionately against racism, against social injustice. We, we, we need to oppose these things. We need to oppose microaggressions. We need to do those things. But we need to do this with a lot of grace and without chips on our shoulders. Someone once said that, um, even in Eugene, that, that more minorities need to be represented in our church. I agree with that wholeheartedly. Yes, please, amen. But here's the other reality, is that Oregon is not a diverse culture. It's not a diverse culture. Part of that is look at Oregon's history. It's gross. It's horrible. It's horrific what we did to minorities. We had a lash law, which meant that we would whip them anywhere from 20 to up to 39 times every six months till they left Oregon. When we did let them come back in, we wouldn't let them buy property. So, of course, we have a very strong white culture in Oregon. So, if that's the case, diversity has to be represented inside of our churches more than just ethnically. And what I mean by that is we need to have people in our churches that are liberal and that are conservative. And I do. We do have that. And I'm very thankful for that. We need to have people that can have disagreements. As a Christian, you need to look, uh, whichever side you stand on, you need to look and see someone that's driving a jacked up lifted truck with a Confederate flag and a Donald Trump sticker for a bumper sticker and look and say, I want to move toward that person because Christ moved toward me. And on the other side, if you drive that truck, you need to move toward the people that drive a very fuel efficient car that have a Bernie Sanders sticker on it and that totally, completely disagree with everything that you stand for politically and say, I'm willing to move toward that person because if you're not willing to, then you need to go back and read verse 11 and 12. But it would be weird if, if, if our only move toward diversity was just to get weird. If we had Caleb and Mark come up here and, and say, we need to turn over the way they do worship and they need to be soulful. I know those guys, they're phenomenal worship leaders. But if, if that was our tact and that was our goal is, is to make them do like soulful worship or something like that, that might get weird. And if anytime we see a person, a minority walking down the street, if, if what we believe we have to do is run after them, that could get weird too. So what we need to do is we need to build relationships with people genuinely because we love them. And I've stayed at churches, I've gone to churches because there was relational love. And so we need to remember that love covers a multitude of sins. I want us to be people that move toward people. I want us to be people that bridge gaps. I want to see racism fought against. I want to see all these things, all these injustices that we talked about fought against. But please let me say this in closing. Wherever your passion lies, please don't expect everyone else to carry the exact same passion that you have because it's those sort of expectations that cause a ton of division and disunity inside of the local church. But what causes unity is to remember this, that we share the best and the worst things about ourselves in common. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you took a heart of stone and made it into a heart of clay. Thank you for fixing my biggest problem. And for many that sit here today doing the same thing for us, for giving us new hearts, hearts that are capable of love, out of those hearts, let us move toward people. 
Out of those hearts, let us deconstruct and reconstruct what is broken in our world. But Father, let us do that and let us move people to deal with the core issue of what's going on in our hearts, the depths of sin and brokenness that only your gospel can heal and can cure. Father, we declare our need for you. Bring unity, bring peace, bring joy, and bring so much grace inside of this community because of our experience of your love and grace for us. In Jesus' name, amen.